0: Well, what a joy it is to sing praises to the Lord and to worship Him together. Uh, let's go before Him in prayer really quickly. Our gracious Father, we thank You for um, this time that we get to spend together studying Your Word, to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. I pray that uh, You would speak through me, allow me to preach Christ, um, and to cause the Word to come alive in each and every one of us, that we would live out our lives, glorifying and honoring you in everything we do. We pray all these things in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen. Well, towards the end of last month, and I'm sure that many of us were tuned into the news, to weather reports, uh, contacting loved ones regarding the Category 4 hurricane that was set to decimate the southeastern coast of the United States. and and the surrounding areas. The senior weather editor for AccuWeather was a man named Jesse Farrell. He said that Ian, the hurricane, is likely the deadliest tropical system for the state of Florida since the 1935 Labor Day hurricane, which killed over 400 people. Hurricane Ian reached peak intensity on September 28th, when it reached a sustained wind speed of 155 miles an hour. There have been numerous deaths, billions of dollars worth of damage, and millions of people whose lives have been drastically changed, and many of which will never be the same. But far too often, we go through trials that maybe aren't related to natural disasters. Trials and tribulations that are out of our control. Perhaps the loss of a loved one. A breakup an injury, a surgery, loss of a job, loss of a home, we lose a pet. There are many things that that we go through that certainly are trials and certainly are sufferings. And it's as if you're flying along in an airplane and it's sunny and you enter a cloud and you can't see anything and you have to rely on your instruments. Life gets dark. Hardships arise, trials come, but when these trials come, what must the Christian do to stand firm? How is the Christian supposed to respond to trials and tribulations? I hope to provide you with three reasons as to why trials happen, and then, Lord willing, provide you with some insights on how to prepare for trials. But before we do that, I want to read our text of study this morning. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, uh, and we'll, we'll focus our study on verses 2 through 4 this morning. James 1, 2 through 4. James writes, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This morning, I want to provide uh, two areas, different areas of study. One will be theological, meaning that I plan to address why suffering happens from a, a theological purpose. Why why do trials happen? Why do Christians suffer? And the second area of study is more of a practical one. What should our response be to trials? How do we comfort others going through trials? And these two fields are important to understand because throughout the scriptures, we see areas of both. And the text in James that we're going to examine this morning will be more of a theological text Yet I plan to also jump around a little bit and look at some other texts that will help us cling to Christ in the midst of sufferings. So first, let's look at the theological purpose of trials. Now, the first thing that must be said, and, and you may notice this if, you, if you've read other New Testament letters, is that James, as compared to other writers, doesn't begin his, his letter with a formal thanksgiving, or at least an elaboration on this point. He simply says who he is and who he's writing to and where they are. Chapter 1, verse 1 simply says that it's to the 12 tribes dispersed among the nations or scattered abroad, some translations say. So this audience is a Jewish one. This letter is dated to be one of of the earlier letters, perhaps sometime in the middle 40s, going maybe even as late as the 60s. There's not really a a set date. Uh, I would lean more towards the middle 40s. So what was going on in that time frame that caused James to, to not only write this letter, but then immediately say, count it joy when you face trials. Well, for starters, the ideas, the themes of, of poverty and wealth are, are very big throughout this letter, as we see discussed in three chapters of this letter. In fact, in, in, in James chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, there is a fairly clear mention of a possibility of religious persecution that was causing this poverty. James is also accusing the wealthy people of condemning and putting the righteous man to death because of withholding wealth. However, in our text this morning, in verses chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, James is casting his net very broadly and suggests that there were trials of various kinds. And that may include religious persecution, poverty, sickness, loneliness, disappointment, depression. But whatever trials are going on at the time, whether religious persecution, whether poverty or anything else, James says, consider it joy. He says that those who are believers must consider it all joy. Now, obviously, James is not saying that the Christian's only response to trials and suffering must be to rejoice. He cannot mean... He cannot mean that because there are many psalms, such as Psalm 88, where the psalmist cries out to God in his despair and there's no resolution. In fact, turn there with me really quickly. Psalm 88. Psalm 88, verses, I want to start in verse 13. But I, O Lord have cried out to you for help. And in the morning my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors, I am overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me, your terrors have destroyed me. They have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me altogether. You have removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. The psalmist here is in deep anguish and despair, and it certainly doesn't seem as if he is counting it all joy when he's facing these trials. And you may also remember in John 11, when Jesus goes to the grave of Lazarus and Lazarus is, is dead. You remember John 11.35, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Doesn't seem as if Jesus is counting at all joy that Lazarus is dead. So turn back to, to James, turn back to our text. We see uh, in, in James, James says to, to, to count it all joy or to consider it joy. Not because you ought to be happy or thrilled that you're endure that you're going through this this persecution or these trials or these sufferings or whatever it is but because of another reason so what is that reason why does James tell us to consider it joy when we face trials of various kinds i think the answer lies in verses 3 and 4 and look there with me now verse 3 James writes knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James corresponds this testing of the faith with trials. He says that that trials and sufferings are actually tests of faith. And these tests produce endurance. Endurance meaning steadfastness, constancy, steadiness. It describes a person who is loyal to his faith and to his devotion to God in the midst of great trials and sufferings. The text could read something like, knowing that trials and tribulations produce a devotion to God that is unwavering, even in the midst of intense suffering. One commentator says that it's similar to a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance, so also Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul when they face difficulty. We see this laid out in First Peter 1, just a few pages over if you're in James. I invite you to turn there with me, First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials... So that, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor the revelation of Jesus Christ. The picture that's being displayed in this passage is that of a goldsmith refining gold. This goldsmith would take the gold, he would turn it into a liquid, and allow any imperfections in that liquid to rise to the surface, and then he would take them out. And as he did this, more and more and more, the gold would become purer and purer and purer. He would repeat this process, and the gold would be refined more, and, and, and it would become pure gold. And that same idea is displayed in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. This testing of the faith is similar to the idea that Peter presents about going through the fire and allowing your faith to produce steadfastness in Christ. Produces perseverance. Turn back to James. Look at verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When faith is tested, when when trials come, this result is is perseverance. The result is endurance. However, that's not the, the end result of testing or trials. James says to let endurance have its perfect work. It's perfect result. The idea here that that is given to the Christian that they're supposed to allow endurance, to allow perseverance, to do what it needs to do or do what it's supposed to do, which is the perfect result. Well, what is this perfect result? This perfect result is is likeness to Christ. You remember in Philippians 1.6, Paul says that that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. God has begun work in your life. If you are a Christian, God has begun a process of sanctification. He's begun a process of growing you into the likeness of Christ, similar to the, the, the goldsmith, refining the gold in the same way God is refining us, chipping away bits and pieces of us to shape us, to mold us, to transform us by the renewing of our mind into the image of Christ. In Romans eight seventeen, Paul says, if indeed we suffer with him, with Christ, We may also be glorified with him. Paul sees this idea that that trials are put into the believer's life so that we will be glorified alongside Christ. And James over here says, yes and amen. And then further says that we ought to allow these trials, allow these, these sufferings, these tribulations, to further shape us into the image of Christ. James is presenting this as the ultimate goal of the testing of faith. That goal is being conformed to Christ, looking like Christ, becoming Christ-like. That's what the word Christian means. Christian means little Christ. It was used, fun little history fact for you, it was used as a a form of mockery in the first century for persecution, persecution. And they were, they were looking at these followers of Jesus, the world was, and, and they were mocking them and saying, oh, you just, you just want, you want to be just like Jesus. You want to be just like him, you, you Christians. And It was a form of mockery. And the Christians heard that and they were like, yeah, that's our goal, actually. I think we like that. We'll, we'll stick with that. So, so we see this, this, this idea that we are supposed to be conformed to Christ. We're supposed to look like Christ. And that's what's happening now. That's that's the process of sanctification. We have been justified. That is to say that we have been made right before God on the basis of faith and faith alone. And and therefore, we're going through this process because of our our right standing before God. Now we're going through this process of being refined to look more like him. We're going through the fire to, to borrow the language from 1 Peter to be sanctified, to be made holy. And the future goal or this this end result of, of this sanctification is ultimately likeness to Christ, but that won't be perfectly reached or perfectly fulfilled until we die and are glorified. And we are given a new body and a new mind. And at 1 John 3 talks about this, we will see him as he is. What a glorious day that will be. James brings forward this idea that trials are are to produce a wholeness of Christian character that does not lack anything and that solely relies upon Jesus Christ. As Hannah prays in 1 Samuel 2.2, Yahweh is my rock. He is our strong fortress. He is our refuge and our strength. James is saying in this text that that trials, sufferings, tribulations, hardships, persecution, whatever, they allow us to grow in our likeness to Jesus Christ. The end result of suffering is that we become sanctified to look more like the image of Christ. We begin to look more like Christ did and, and does and That's the purpose of of our lives. That's our goal in life. You remember the the famous uh, Westminster Confession of Faith? The first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To to honor God, to bring glory to God. Well, how do we do that? By being obedient to Him. How do we be obedient to Him? We, We have to look like Christ. Well, how do we look like Christ? Well, you can't know how Christ looks if you don't read your Bible, so study God's Word, allow it to shape you, allow this, these, these trials and this, this testing to, to shape you to look more like Christ. So that's the theological purpose of trials. They're tests of faith given by God, that cause us to be sanctified and ultimately grow in Christ-likeness. Now, I want to examine the practical purpose of trials. And there are two questions that I presented to you earlier that I want to answer. The first being, what should the Christian's response be to trials and to suffering? How should we respond? Often in pain and suffering we tend to only see what trials remove from our lives. Health, people, finances, careers, our body's ability. Yet our trials, our sufferings, will ultimately give us more than they could ever take away. So we know that testing produces endurance, or steadfastness, and we can be sure of this fact, not because we are visibly able to see ourselves transforming into the image of Christ by the renewing of our mind, as Romans 12 talks about. Usually in the moment, our our response to pain and suffering is not, I'm so glad that I'm suffering. I know for a fact that I'm being sanctified. That's usually not how we respond. If, for whatever reason, that is how you respond, Please come talk to me. I would love to hear how you do that. In the moment of our suffering, in the midst of our trials, all we can see is darkness. We fly into a cloud. We lose sight of everything we know. All we see is pain. We see the diagnosis, the heartbreak, the injury the loneliness, the anxiety. We see all these things. And we know that testing produces steadfastness because God gives us a pattern of how others in history have responded. For example, take Job. If you haven't read the book of Job, I I would highly encourage you to, to do so. Job was a righteous man. He loved God. He was a devout man of God. And in Job 1, Satan goes to God, and God says, "You considered my servant Job?" God essentially asks Satan if he's thought about putting Job through the ringer. And throughout the book of Job, you'll see all the trials and tribulations that he endures. He loses his children, his servants. His fortune, he gets sick, his life falls apart, yet his faith does not waver. Think also of the Apostle Paul. Paul was stoned, shipwrecked, persecuted, beaten, imprisoned. Yet he says that it it doesn't matter because of the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. All throughout Scripture, there are many characters who have, who have suffered and who have counted it joy. And we can do the same because the power that, that enabled them to do so abides in us. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling in us. And that allows us, that enables us to count it joy. We can retrace the stories of many Bible characters and and, and see that there was never a person called a child of God. There was never a Christian. There was never anybody who had any faith in God. Never a person called a child of God whose suffering was for nothing. And there will never be one. Prophet Hosea says, come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live for him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. And similarly, in Isaiah 30, Isaiah writes, the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. 1787, there was a man named John Ripon, or Ripon, who wrote a hymn titled, How Firm a Foundation. I want to read to you the fourth verse, because it fits perfectly. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. What beautiful lyrics that the Christian can cling so tightly to. There's no doubt that that trials and sufferings are both fiery and painful at times. And and they can even challenge our relationship with the Lord. We've all had or are currently having or will go through trials that are painful. However, even though these times can, can easily lead us to a place of anger, frustration, bitterness, or even doubt, To God, we can respond as Charles Spurgeon did and learn to kiss the waves that throw him against the rock of ages. Because trials bring about a form of steadfastness, of endurance, that's rooted in the firm foundation of Christ, the Christian is able to rejoice in the midst of his trials and tribulations, not because he's enjoying them, but because his hope is not found in anything but Christ alone. The second question I want to answer is this. How should Christians comfort one another in the midst of trials and tribulations? In the midst of suffering, God insists that we pass on his comfort. In fact, turn to 2 Corinthians with me. Second Corinthians, chapter one. Second Corinthians, chapter one, verses three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God is the God of all comfort. And notice, too, the language of of Father. God is the, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think of the ultimate sufferer, We ought to think of the suffering servant himself. It's Jesus Christ. Compassionate fathers are devastated when their children go through intense suffering and now think of Christ and his sufferings. He went to the cross. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He bore our iniquities. He became sin and the father was pleased to crush him. The consolation we receive from God is born out of his own suffering. We are the recipients of God's fatherly consolation and so that means that that we have become the, the means for his love to strengthen and encourage others. One of the ways that that we can comfort others is through prayer. We know from Psalm 10, Psalm 1017, I believe is what it is, that the Lord will incline his ear to those who are hurting. Praying with, with one another and praying for one another is one of the best things that, that you can do as a church body. You come alongside one another. You are united together. And when one body Member of the body hurts, the entire body hurts with them. Think about it, if you stub your toe, it's not just your toe that hurts, but every part of you hurts, right? In the same way, when members of the body of Christ are hurting, we ought to have that compassion, that love for one another, and pray for one another, pray with one another, comfort one another with prayer. Another way that we can comfort others is with Scripture. There's an overwhelming amount of passages that talk about suffering and God's faithfulness to us in the midst of suffering and tribulation. God is faithful to us. He's promised never to leave us nor forsake us. He's a rock. He's a very present help in trouble. Psalm 119.50 says, this is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And there are dozens more. And I wish we could turn to all of them, but we don't have the time for that. As we continue to study God's word, we begin to read passages and stories that can comfort ourselves and comfort others in the midst of trials. And there's such an importance of of reading the Bible daily in the Christian's life. How are you going to know these stories of people who had suffered and counted joy if you don't read about them? How can you comfort one another with prayer or comfort one another with Scripture if you don't know what the Scripture says? Be there for one another. Comfort one another. Treat others in the same way that you would want to be treated. There's a a question that, that tends to arise when when discussing trials, tribulations, sufferings, and I want to address that. I'm sure you maybe have, have heard it before. The question is often is often phrased like this. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a question, it's a valid question, it's a good question. Of course, we'll you scour the internet. You can ask everybody you know but it seems like you don't really get a solid answer. It seems like there's not really a, a, a good answer that we've, that we've found. And I'm not saying that I'm going to provide a perfect answer, but I, I'd love to provide one. But I want to address it because I think this, this question can arise quickly, especially with those who are not believers. I'm not saying that you have to be an unbeliever to ask this question. Anybody can ask it, but commonly we think we when we hear about these things, and I know encounters that I've had, people who who aren't in the faith typically ask these questions. Well, the first thing that must be considered in this question is that it assumes that there are good people. Now, outwardly, someone may seem like a good person. But we know from Romans 3 that there is none who are righteous. None are good, not even one. And all of the entirety of history, there's actually only been one good person who's had bad things happen to him, and he suffered them and endured them willingly. His name is Jesus Christ. We have we, we tend to have this idea that we are good people, that we would never hurt a fly or anything like that. We may never hurt a fly or anything, but we are sinners. All of us are are, are marred with sin. We have, we have, have fallen short of the glory of God. We are guilty sinners who are standing before a judge with no other hope but Christ. So bad things happen often. Good things happen too. But all of these things, good or bad, happen to bad people. So when we ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? The answer, I think, lies within the fact that this is a, one, this is a broken world under the curse of sin. It's waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be made new, and one day it will be made new. One day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And death will be no more, neither will there be crying or sorrow or suffering, for the former things will have passed away. And we anxiously await that day when our Lord Jesus will return and put sin's reign to an end. So when people ask this question, we can use it as a way to share the gospel. The gospel must be preached When you ask this question, when you personally, if you find yourself asking this question, teach the gospel to yourself. Even if you have five seconds, remind yourself, I'm more sinful than I could ever imagine, and God's grace is deeper than I could ever fathom. So what are we to do when we ourselves go through suffering? How should we respond? we should exalt the character of God. We remember his goodness, his wisdom, his love, his justice. We remember who he is. And we remember these things and remind ourselves that God does not, nor can he, make mistakes. He is working all things together for good to those who love him. We exalt him and praise him, because though this world is sinful and broken, God has done what is necessary to get rid of sin. God sent his son, born of a virgin, into the world. He lived a perfect and sinless life, a life that that we could not have ever lived. He was obedient in all things. He truly loved the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he truly loved his neighbor as he did himself. And he went to the cross, this this innocent, guiltless man. And there he died on the cross. And at the cross... God puts all the sin of those who would ever believe onto him and trampled him underneath the wrath of God. We know from Isaiah 53 that the Lord was pleased to crush him. Jesus was buried and he laid there for three days and then he rose triumphantly conquering sin and death. And he ascended to heaven and is one day returning and will officially end sin's reign and will set up his throne that will reign forever. (laughs) What a glorious thought that is. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is is talking about the coming of our Lord and he says in verse 18 to comfort one another with these words. Not Not just with the return of Christ and the renewal of all things, but with, with the words of the gospel. So as we conclude this morning, I want to read the lyrics to one of my favorite hymns. It was written by, by John Newton in 1779. And it is a beautiful poem about how the Lord afflicts us so that he might comfort us. The lyrics read this. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray and he I trust has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every heart. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? It is in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayer for faith and grace. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. What comfort these words bring we ask to grow, and sometimes we don't ask. Yet the Lord still grows us. He lets the power of hell assault us. He, he reforms our plans. He directs our steps. And when we ask, why are you doing this, Lord? Why are you doing this? What's going on? This isn't what I wanted. He responds. And he says, I'm doing this that thou mayst find thy all in me. May we find everything in Christ and cling so closely to him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for who you are. We know that you are a good and a gracious king. I pray that as we endure trials and pain, that you would allow us to see the full picture and that we would find everything in you. Lord, I pray for, for anyone here who is not a Christian. I pray that you would open their eyes to your truth and that they would come to know you. God, we love you and we praise you. Would you help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called we pray all these things in your son's precious and holy name amen